Good to see you all this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good, better way to start that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into things. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be here to worship together. We thank you for uh, who you are. We thank you that you are the everlasting God. And we pray that today that you will make yourself known so clearly through your word. Thank you for the gospel, for what Christ has done for us. Thank you for your grace, your amazing grace that saves us. And Lord, I pray that, that uh, Christ will be proclaimed through, this, through the word. And, uh, and God, even now, confess that I am a sinner through and through. And thank you for saving me. Thank you for the grace you've poured into my life. And thank you for each person here today and the grace that you've poured upon them. And if there's one here who has never fully rested in that grace, may today be that day. Holy Spirit, demonstrate your power through your work, through the word, and we'll give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, before I tell you what text to take, um, so it's a, it's, as we come to August, it was next weekend, it'll be one year since I, when I preached my trial sermon here at Chillicothe Baptist Church. And so one year ago, next week, you called me and my family to come here. And um, I say that with a very uh, strong heart of thanksgiving and gratitude. We, are, we remain grateful and uh, to be here to serve with you and, uh, and for the journey that God has had this last year. Um, just so many ways that he's poured out his goodness and grace. And so it is a blessing to come up here each week and open God's word. It's a blessing to serve with our other pastors and our staff. And today I'm the lone pastor. Pastor Dan is on vacation, so thankful that Nick was able to uh, step in and lead us in worship today. And Pastor Joe is uh, preaching at another church, filling in for a friend. And so uh, today I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, as we continue our series called The Tales of the Kingdom. And this particular passage, um, I'll say this, this is probably, it's always hard to say that something's your favorite. But this is one of my favorite parables. This is one of the parables that Jesus tells that just resonates in my soul and really has been, it, it almost reflects kind of some things in my own life these last couple of years. And so today the title of the message is The Shock of Grace. The last will be first. Matthew 20 verse 1 through 16. Stand with me as we read God's word together. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. 
And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm going, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. That's not fair. We've all heard that, haven't we? Every parent right now should be poking their child. <laughs> Not only do we live in a culture of unforgiveness, which we talked about last week as we looked at the unforgiving servant, that unforgiving culture in which we find ourselves canceling, blocking, unfriending, so on and so forth. We also live in a culture that is obsessed with fairness and merit. It is driven by a sense of entitlement. Entitlement is a tumor of covetousness. Entitlement is a tumor of covetousness. It's not just I want that, it's I deserve that. Especially if I worked hard, I paid my dues, I did all that was necessary, and now what should be mine is coming to me. And so that mindset dominates our culture, and we see it in subtle ways, right? We see that in our children, as I just kind of alluded to a minute ago. Children who they have expectation to what they think is entitled to them from their parents. A husband who is uh, frustrated with his wife, or a wife with her husband, because there's this this thought of what, is, what, what I deserve is not being given to me. And then in the general mottos of our society, work hard, pay, you, you pay your dues, you, you do means you deserve, right? Those are, the, those are the, the, the mottos of our culture. And when things do not go according to expectations, then people are offended, right? They're outraged. We've heard that term. We live in an outrage culture. Everybody's mad. And everybody's mad because everybody feels like they're entitled to happiness, peace, and some kind of just goodness in life. And this mindset is toxic when it comes to the message of the gospel, Listen to me, the worst thing to think in the world is the idea that God owes you something. That's the worst thought that we could have. That God owes me something. That God owes us 
a life where we never have problems, we never have pain, and we never have trials. Friend, listen to me. You do not want fair from God. You don't want fair from God. Fairness would mean you and I would be separated from God forever and sentenced to hell and damnation. Let's just put it out there. That would be fair. The message of the gospel is not about fairness. It's about grace. What is grace? What is grace? Because grace is really the antithesis of this whole idea of entitlement and fairness. The gospel is about grace. The grace, grace is God's, uh, God's favorable attitude towards sinners for no apparent reason. Did you hear that? For no apparent reason. In, in other words, it's his favorable attitude towards people who don't deserve it. That's the key. And one author says this, grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. And that's right, because in a world of unforgiveness and in a world of constant emphasis on fairness, grace shocks everyone when they really encounter it. And grace also offends our prideful, sinful natures. Grace strikes down our pride. Grace strikes down our sense of superiority, our attitudes of self-righteousness, and our inward concept of self-worthiness. Grace goes against the grain of everything. And I'm not just talking about everything in religious circles. Grace goes against everything in secular society. I would say that even as a school teacher, when we'd go to these meetings and I'd say, man, it's just all about work, 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 merit, merit, merit. They deserve, they deserve, they deserve, they deserve. Sets kids up for the impossible. What is really needed is grace. What grace does is, is it crushes all merit-based systems and religions because what grace does is, is it strips us of any notion that we can earn our way to heaven. And listen to me today. Our need for grace, the, our need for grace from God is far greater than we imagine. And grace is the heart of the gospel. Even the reformers understood that. It is the entire reason that Jesus came from heaven to save us. Salvation from God is by grace alone, in Christ alone, from the beginning all the way to the end. It's all grace. I say that because this is a parable about grace. This parable that Jesus gives takes us to a vineyard about grace. We might call it the vineyard of grace. And this parable is shocking to us because the grace that we discover in this vineyard, it does what I just said. It shocks and it offends. And you see it just in the initial reading. This parable really is outrageous, <laughs> even to ears today. I don't think any of us will walk out today unoffended. In fact, if we don't walk out offended and shocked, then we haven't heard anything about grace. Because the key kingdom truth in this text is this. Grace is shocking, 
as your place in the kingdom of God is utterly, totally, completely, entirely undeserving. Let that drop into your heart right now. Grace is shocking as your place in the kingdom of God is utterly, entirely undeserving. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how good you might assume you to be. Grace is shocking because your place, my place in the kingdom is undeserving. And you will see this in three ways as we walk through the parable. We'll look at the purpose of the landowner. And then we'll look at the payment of the laborer, and then we'll look at the pronouncement of the Lord. Let's look at all three of those things this morning. The first thing you see is the purpose of the landowner. This is the first place that we'll stop and we'll begin to see grace unfold. And at each point, I'll give you a grace point at the very end, because I just want to just drive home this truth about grace today. The purpose of the landowner. So in verse 1, Jesus tells a kingdom tale, and he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like, and in this he compares it to a man or a master who's a landowner who decides early one morning to go find laborers at the marketplace. And that would be common. If you wanted work in an agricultural society in the ancient world, you would hang out at the the marketplace, and usually landowners would come, and they would hire you standing there waiting to work the fields. And so I want you to notice just out of the gate that it is the landowner that takes the initiative. Did you catch that? Look at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out. He went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his field. And there are two things that we see in the purpose of the landowner. The first thing you're going to see is the agreed wage. Look at, look at verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the he sent them into the vineyard. And so you see there in verse 2 the first hire. You, we got to get this. He makes an agreement. Focus on that agreement. What does he agree to pay the first workers? He agrees to pay them a denarius a day. Now, a denarius was a silver Roman coin. It was typically what a soldier in the Roman army made. So the reason I say that is, is because this is pretty generous, right? This wouldn't be minimum wage. You are just, you weren't working for $10 an hour. You're probably working for $20 an hour or $15 an hour. And today, for someone who's just starting out in a job, that's pretty good. To start out at $14, $15 an hour, that's really good if it's $20. Hard to believe we're saying that, isn't it? Depending on how old you are. And so this would have been a very generous offer. Thus, this would have been above standard for workmen in the marketplace for field work. And the first hired workers, they were glad. They gladly agreed. And they were thankful. Why would they be thankful? They're thankful because they needed work. They had, many of them probably had families. They needed, they needed a job. And so not only do they have work, but they have work. And the person hiring them is being pretty generous. And that's what verse 2 indicates to us. They agreed with him. And they agreed and probably thankful they go into the vineyard. But then what happens after verse 2 is we go through a series of additional workers. So we have the agreement of the wage, and then we have the additional workers. And so look, let's just walk through that. 
Look at the second hire, verse 3 and 4. In verse 3 and 4, the text says, And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. And so while the first workers are working in the field, the owner goes out a second time. This is about 9 a.m. So the Jewish workday would begin at 6, and it would go to 6 p.m. Because it, it led into the weekend, which would Sabbath would have begun on Friday night. So the workday was 6 to 12, or 6 to 6, and so at 9 a.m. he goes out and he sees more guys standing in the, in the marketplace and they're standing idle. What that means is, is that they're just standing there and they can't do anything until someone hires or calls. And as he goes in, he hires them and he sends them into the vineyard to work. And notice here, there's no negotiated price. He just says, I'll pay you, what, what does it say? He says, I'll pay you what is right. So there's no agreement. So we're not given insight into what the landowner is thinking in terms of pay. Well, once again, they don't, they don't argue, they just go. Maybe they were there earlier and they heard him tell the, the, guy, the first guys that they were going to get a denarius and they thought that was generous so maybe we'll get, you know, just a little bit less but still this guy will, will take care of us. So they'll take what they get, they go. Then you have the third and the fourth hire. Look at verse five. In verse five the text says, so they went going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same. And so notice the third and fourth hire. Verse 5, he goes out again two more times. He goes at noon, half the day is gone. And then he goes at 3 p.m., three quarters of the day is gone. And in both cases, he hires more workers and sends them into the vineyard to work. So keep in mind here, we would figure he'd probably pay at noon. If you're hired at noon, what do you think you're going to get? Probably half a denarius, right? That's probably, that makes sense. If you're at three, you're probably going to get three quarters of a, of a denarius. But then what you see is, is in verse six and seven, the owner does something strange. <laughs> a last minute hire, right? I mean, what are you going to do in an hour, I mean, at the end of your day, you're closing up shop, right? You're, you're putting tools up. You're, 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 cleaning, you're cleaning off the equipment. You're getting ready to close the day. And notice what happens in verse 6 and 7. About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? He's not rebuking them for idleness. He is recognizing their helplessness. Because look at their answer. He, they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. I don't know, I'm just, I'm just putting this out there. But maybe he asked the question because these guys had to be grateful that, well, I mean, an hour's an hour, so we'll go and we'll work. And that's what happened. At 5 p.m., these guys are hired as the final crew to come and work for less than an hour. Now, if you got hired in the beginning of the day, you've been watching all this. And that's what had been happening. Everybody through the day had been watching more people show up at different times through the day. And so, and, and so the owner hires these guys on the spot, sends them into the vineyard. But here's the key again. What initiates their place in the vineyard? 
the call of the landowner, not the choice of the worker. It is the, it is the call of the landowner that initiates everything else that happens. It's almost like that call just generates a response, right? Who's going to say no to that? And so here's what you get. You get a glimpse of grace. Again, who is the main, who's the main character of this parable? It's the landowner. He does everything. He is in sovereign control. He takes the initiative. He goes. He calls. He hires. And he hires, listen, not based on merit, not based on ability, not based on skill. He hires on the basis of his sovereign kindness and goodness. And anything that these men do through the rest of this day is incomparable to what this landowner did for them. They, in fact, anything they do is only because of this good and gracious owner. And so, what is the symbolism? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? The vineyard is the kingdom of God, and God is the owner. The workers that are hired are believers who are called into the kingdom through salvation. And so the whole point that Jesus is driving at in this first part as we look at the purpose of the landowner is this. He is driving at the fact that if today you are saved, today if you're in the kingdom, it is because of our good and gracious God. That's why. You did not go looking for him. He came looking for you. Because he loved you first. And he purposed in his own heart to be good and gracious towards you. And so think about it. What would we say about this owner? As we look at this passage and we see what this owner does, what we would say is that he takes the initiative to call people into his vineyard at different parts of the day. And what we have to recognize is unless he acts, these men would have no place in the vineyard. And so today, we have only God to thank if you're saved today. If you're in the kingdom of God today, if you know your sins are forgiven, if you have been born again, that is a work of God himself. And it is a work of God alone. And unless he would have acted, they would have had no place in the vineyard. So let me ask you, do they deserve to be in the vineyard? Clearly not. But they're placed in the vineyard by the sovereign goodness of the landowner. So here's the grace point. This is what I want you to get. God graciously takes sovereign initiative and he calls sinners into his kingdom. And if you're saved today, that's what happened to you. You heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit called to you through the preaching of the gospel. And when your eyes were open to the truth and your heart believed and you repented, it is because of the sovereign call of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we would go as far as to say that even your faith and repentance is the result of the call of the Holy Spirit. And we see that even in Ephesians 2. 
So the grace point is God graciously takes sovereign initiative and calls sinners into his kingdom. Let's make this really personal. How did God sovereignly find and call you into his kingdom? Think back. For some of you, you're like, I don't have a date. That's all right. All you know is is that you were once blind and now you see. You once were in unbelief and now you believe. You were once in your sin and now you've been rescued from your sin. You can't put a date to that. There's no formula you followed. All you know is is that you were awakened to your need of salvation and God found you and God saved you. For others of us, it might have been something as clear as the faithful witness of a grandparent or a parent or the witness of another brother or another sister that came to us, a coworker who just, just graciously shared the gospel with us and God in his sovereignty was working to open our hearts to receive Christ. Aren't you glad that God sovereignly called you to himself I remember being a kid in the, in, in, in a, attending Catholic grade school. And I can remember that every year, every year that during Easter season, we would go and we would have daily mass. And keep in mind, I grew up in two systems. I went to Catholic grade school, but I also went to a Baptist church where the preacher preached the gospel every Sunday. And so I remember every day, one year after, this, after, after the Mass was over, I would stay back and I would linger, and, and then I would just wait, because we were allowed to do that, and I would just walk through the 14 stations of the cross. I look back at that, you know what I can see? I can see that in those moments, even as a young child, God was op- starting to open my eyes to the things that are on these murals are the truth of the saving gospel that saves us. Isn't God amazing in how he works? And I could then tell you sitting in churches just like this, hearing the preaching of God's word, and growing up in an environment, what I heard and I heard and I heard. And sometimes as a kid, it's just like, you know, the teacher and Snoopy. All you hear is, uh, and then you hear a final amen, you're ready to get out of here. And then one day, one day, I was sitting and I heard, I heard in a way I'd never heard before. Suddenly I saw myself as that sinner that was about to plunge headlong into hell. And suddenly I saw the Christ who died on that cross had died for me. And at that moment, God gave me faith to believe and brokenness over my sin. What about you? Any believer in this room can relate to what I just said. Aren't you glad that God sovereignly calls us? Because if he had not done that, I would have never come looking for him. But look at the second thing, the payment for the labor, verse 8. So in verse 8, the story continues. So in verse 8, it says this, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. You've got to underline that you got to get that, beginning with the last up to the first. There's a couple very clever reasons why that's worded that way. So the first thing you'll notice is the generous compensation of the, of the, of the landowner, but it's given in reverse order. Look at verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now let's slow it down. So the owner calls for the workers so they can receive payment for their labor at verse 8. The foreman is instructed to pay from their wages in reverse order. So he begins with the last, which takes us then to the first. And actually, if you go back to chapter 19, you'll see that in verse 30 it says, but many are first will be last and last first. So apparently this parable is actually reaching back to something else. We'll get there in a second. But what I want you to see is the language of the text. He gives each of those hired last, that is at the last hour, he gives them the same thing as he promised or agreed with to the guys that were hired in the morning. Now what, is, what effect does that have on you? Well, the same effect it has in the story. It creates expectation. If you're hired first, you're like, oh, okay, something's happened here. He's given the last guy a denarius. I mean, we're going to walk out of here making bank is what you're thinking. Those hired first thought, there's no doubt. I mean, look what it says. They thought that they would receive more. <laughs> and then the way Jesus words it, look at it. But each of them also received a denarius. I mean, you can almost see. Can you feel the suspense building? There's this created expectation. But each of them also received a denarius. Here's what I think. I think the reason why, and I said that I think this, I think it's very clear. The reason Jesus tells the story that way is because he wants us to feel the outrage. If you feel the outrage, he's getting at your heart. That's not fair. Come on, you've thought that. If you're honest, you thought, yeah, somebody right about that. And so, what did you expect? I think it's logical to say we'd all expect the same that they expected. But, but here's the real question. Why do we have this expectation? Because we completely misunderstand we completely misunderstand the sovereignty of the landowner and we completely misunderstand what we really deserve. How quickly we forget. Isn't it true? And so you see this when you get to verse 10 or verse 11. And on receiving the denarius, here's the outrage. They grumbled at the master of the house saying, wait, wait a minute. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. All right, now there we have it. There's the entitlement. There's the I deserve. There's the who do you think you are. There's the cry victim right there. <laughs> the grumbling complaint of the raging workers. They received the denarius not with gratitude, but with what? Grumbling. With grumbling. They received it with grumbling. And you can hear the grumbles. Call the union representative. Get him in here right now. I want to talk to the foreman. I've worked all day. And now you're paying this guy the same amount you're paying me. So you can, I mean, you can feel this. And, and then listen to what they say. They tell their, they tell their representative. These last workers only worked an hour or less. Some guys are probably over there counting, like watching them, taking notes. And then you've made them equal to us. Wow. 
You, you, you getting the picture here? And not only that, we worked, comparison, we worked all day in the heat of the day, and we carried the greater burden. You know, here's, here's the thing. It's interesting because when we read, it's funny, at least I'm, I'm just being transparent with you. I, I get it. Like, when we read the prodigal son parable, aren't we compassionate about the rebel son? Oh, you know, the rebel son comes home and the father's out there, arms are open wide, big hug, big party, right? Kill the fatted uh, cow, calf and, you know, put a ring on his finger. We're like, yeah, that's what he, that's so kind and gracious. Oh, we're all crying, right? And that old, that brother in there, we're like, that, that's, that, that self-righteous brother, somebody needs to go punch him in his face. That's how we're thinking when we read the story. But then you read this story, and somehow we get all mixed up about what grace is. Isn't it funny? All of a sudden, then we're thinking like, well, wait a minute. I'm mad at the landowner. (laughs) Just a little bit. You know what this parable does? It exposes the prideful entitlement of our self-righteous hearts. Could the problem be that we have a wrong understanding of fairness and Jesus knows it? And could it be that we don't truly comprehend grace? Could it be that maybe these men should have been wondering how in the world did I end up here at 6 a.m.? How good was it for him to hire me at 6 a.m.? And this landowner, he is exceptionally great because he even brought somebody in at 11th hour. See how we miss grace? See how, how quickly we revert to looking at ourselves? And the compensation parallels, uh, and we do the same thing. It parallels our salvation. What Jesus does here is he dismantles works-based salvation, exposing this self-righteous tendency of religion. And notice what they do. They assess others, that's what we do, and they assert their work, and that's what we do. They, they, they assess others, and that's what we do. They've watched all day long, right? You're out there in the field, and you're waiting. And say, Wait a minute. These guys are coming in at noon. That's half the day. They've already forgotten. They shouldn't even be there. And so they assess others. They only did this. They only did that. The point of this is to posture themselves to make this charge. They're, they're, they're grumbling because here's the charge. These other guys here don't deserve to be here they're not as worthy as me they don't deserve what I deserve those 11th hour people should not even be here the thinking is that certain people like me have a claim and others don't and what Jesus is driving at is that no one has a claim to God's mercy based on their merit and no one should even be in the kingdom And apart from the king himself, we wouldn't even be in the kingdom. And so we so often compare ourselves and conclude that some are not as worthy as ourselves to salvation. Listen, none of us are worthy. None of us are deserving. And the gospel has made all of us kings and priests unto our God. And so we assess others. But the other thing we do is we assert our works. And notice how they asserted their work. Did not we work harder, longer, and better? Catch that. 
Did we not work longer, harder, and better than these other guys? Therefore, we think we should earn more. How quick we are, hear me, how quick we are to think that we earn our place before God rather than he gives us a place before him. Now, let me illustrate the point, okay? How do we get this? Well, if you go back to Matthew chapter 19, and I want you to just go to verse 28. Peter says in verse 27, he says to P- Peter says to Jesus, he says, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Well, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so notice what Jesus is doing. The parable is to really drive home the point. He doesn't doesn't dismiss Peter's question. He doesn't say that, oh, well, there'll be no reward. He says there will be reward. Praise God for you who have left father and mother and houses and lands. But, but what he's doing is, is that what, he, what Jesus does in the last sentence is he demonstrates the larger truth. In other words, do you know what is more important than what you have sacrificed and all the work that you have done? The grace that got you here. That's greater than anything, is the whole point. No matter what sacrifice or cost experienced, what, no matter what work done by the disciple, you are in the kingdom of God by what? Grace alone. That's the point. He wants the disciples to never forget that the whole reason they're in the kingdom is because of the grace of God. And you know, it's no different today. Many think, look at what I do, how much I give, all the ways I serve, all the church attendance, all the spiritual disciplines I follow, like reading my Bible, all the prayers raised, all the morality badges I've achieved. I've had people tell me through the years, you know, I've never drank a day in my life. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I've never committed sexual immorality, okay? No cussing for me, no more drinking for me, no immorality for me, and I mean, can't we just go on all the external boxes and we keep checking and checking and checking? You say, what's your point? The point is this, none of those things count for righteousness. None of those things earn salvation. And it is pride in any of us to boast of any of it as a means to earn our place with God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so the whole point is, is that what we're not saying is like, oh, well, let's just go headlong and let's just sin. No, that's not the point. But the point is, is that whatever evil you've avoided or whatever evil you've been saved from, every bit of it is because of the grace of God. All of it is the grace of God. I, let me read that again, not a result of works. Not a result of works 
Why? Why will he not let us believe that we earn our righteousness? Because we will not be permitted to boast. And don't we like to boast? Don't we? I mean, doesn't that, the spotlight here shines right in my own heart. How quickly I am to think that the things I do are somehow earning me merit with God. R.C. Sproul said one of the hardest things for us to really understand is that we cannot do anything to earn our way to heaven. Because the minute I say yes to that, I'm fighting in myself these prideful things that I want to put all of my confidence in when it comes to my salvation. And we're not talking about the Christian life. We're not talking about the, the duties of the Christian life that are a result of the gospel. But the point is, is that if we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. And so, it do, and so here's what Jesus is, is really getting at. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I really would, would, would just simply assert to you that it doesn't matter if you're last or you're first or somewhere in between. If you're in the kingdom, it is because of the grace of the king. This is what Jerry Bridges says this. He says, he says those that are truly saved are those who have come to Jesus with the attitude expressed in the words of the old hymn, nothing in my hand I cling I, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And so the outrage of these workers, are you getting it? It's miscalculated, it's miscalculated entitlement. Their outrage is miscalculated entitlement. Rather than saying, I don't deserve, they're saying, I deserve. Rather than being astonished at the grace of the landowner, they are demanding what should be theirs, when really nothing should be theirs. Author Philip Yancey hits the miscalculation on the head in a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, which a couple of years ago I picked up and read, and I was utterly just devastated by the amazing reality of grace. He says, God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit. For none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would all end up in hell. So here's the grace point. The grace point is this. Salvation is not a reward for our works. It is a gift of God's abundant grace. So let me ask you a question. Do you receive salvation as an unworthy sinner? Or do you rely on your works? Which is it? Which is it? And today, maybe you're a Christian, but you keep, you keep going into spouts of despair because you feel like you don't live up and you're rather than live in grace. And so the shock of what we just heard leads to something amazing. The pronouncement of the Lord. We have to go there. So we've talked about the payment to the laborers, for the labor. We've talked about the, the payment for the labor. We've talked about the purpose of the landowner. And now we see finally the pronouncement of the Lord. The Lord of the estate responds to the, the, to the, re, the rebuke of the disgruntled servants. Look at verse 13. 
It says this. He says, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And so notice in verse 13 and 14 that his response is this. He responds not defending himself, but by telling him what kind of landowner he is. Did you see it? The first thing he tells him is that he is a graciously fair and faithful landowner. That's the first thing. The pronouncement is this. I am fair and I am faithful. And I am graciously fair and faithful. And so he tells the worker, I treated you fairly. And what does he do? He reminds him of the agreement which was built on what? Was that agreement built on the performance of the worker or on the trustworthiness of the landowner? It was built upon the trustworthiness of the landowner. That's what it was built upon. He's not rewarding based on performance. He's rewarding based upon his promise. And so the owner has kept his word and now gives what he has promised. And in doing so, he is graciously fair and he is gloriously faithful. The workers asserted entitlement and expectation. I deserve Therefore, I expect this. The landowner demonstrates fairness and faithfulness with grace. And he says, I give to the last what I give to you. End of the conversation. Stop the comparison. Stop the looking across at everybody else. Stop looking at the other person and saying, well, wait a minute. I don't think they should deserve to be here. Well, they're here by the same grace that you're here. And so that's what he's driving at. And so it it brings the question, how is it fair that God would give grace to guilty sinners? All of that leads us to the gospel. If I've gotten too loud, I'm sorry. I'm just like, I can feel it in my throat. So anyway, I need to stay calm. It leads us to the gospel. It's amazing that any sinner should be found in God's kingdom, and it's possible only because of Jesus. In other words, God has not left sin unpunished. On the cross, Jesus Christ took the full penalty of our sins. He died in our place, taking our punishment. The whole way that God can accept sinners into his kingdom is the truth that the righteous for the unrighteous That's what Christ did to save you and me because we cannot save ourselves. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Karma says you get what you deserve. The gospel says Jesus took what you deserve so you could be forgiven of every sin and be received into his kingdom. You know what that does? It flips fairness upside down. Karma doesn't know what to do with that. Buddhism doesn't know what to do with that. Hinduism doesn't know what to do with that. Secular ideology doesn't know what to to do with that. Because everybody has to earn and prove and work in order to be forgiven, accepted, and exonerated. And And God says, no, you are exonerated and pardoned and forgiven at the cross. What should have been yours in fairness 
was Christ in, at Calvary. Jesus got justice, and you and I have received grace. <laughs> That's why the old hymn says, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And so, you, you know, when we get to heaven, do you know what you're going to find when you get to heaven? You're going to find a former terrorist. His name's Paul. And his name was Saul. And he put to death Christians. And Jesus saved them. You're going to find the man on the cross who literally in the last moments of his life had no seminary degree, had no, had no doctrinal creed. All he knew is, is that that man in the middle is the Son of God, and he should not be on that cross. And all he did was look at, that, at Jesus on that middle cross and say, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today you're going to be with me in paradise. The last shall be first. You will find prostitutes who were forgiven, like Mary. You will find greedy tax collectors, like Matthew. And you will find self-righteous religionists, like Nicodemus, who all found salvation in Jesus Christ. Some who we never thought could be saved will be in heaven because they were saved by the grace of God. And I actually fear that many who we thought were saved and would be in heaven will not be because they trusted in their works and not in the cross. But I'll tell you this, all who are saved and everyone in heaven will only be there because of the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I got a feeling that when we, uh, when we open our eyes in the eternal state, I think the greatest shock will be for all of us that he has received us into his kingdom. And so that leads us to the last observation of the text. He's graciously fair and faithful. And then lastly, the Lord is sovereignly generous and good. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? I mean, he's getting at the heart. The landowner demonstrates that he is sovereign to do what he wants because it all belongs to him and then turns it on them and probes their hearts. Do you begrudge my generosity? Are you forgetting that I am good? Do you think that you stand deserving and that I owe you? It's a powerful question. It harkens back to Romans chapter 9 in verse 20 where he, Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The whole point is God is sovereign in his salvation. He owes us nothing. We deserve nothing. And let me, let me say this real quickly. Some have used this parable to teach Mark, Marxist equity. Some have. Well, see, this is what it means. Everybody should get the same wage. No, that's not the point of the text. It's not about equity. It's about sovereignty. That's what this is about. 
God can save anyone he chooses into his kingdom. No one has a right to his vineyard. And those that he has chosen, he calls. And those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he will glorify. And anyone that is in his vineyard are there because of his sovereign grace. And no one gets to look at God and say, well, I don't like exactly how you did this. (laughs) That's what Jesus is getting at. And so let me drive it home. He owes us nothing. We deserve nothing. Yet here's what I fear is that some blame God for something bad that happened in their life. Some walk through life thinking that God owes them, what I said in the beginning. Something didn't go their way. Or, or you might think, well, you know, God owes me, a, again, a pain-free, happy existence. I'm telling you that entitlement thinking will destroy your soul. God has been so good and generous to all of us. And how generous and good has he been to us through Jesus Christ? He has graciously and freely given us all things through Christ Jesus. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's what these men should have been crying out. Oh, give thanks to the landowner. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Has he been good to you? Has he been faithful to you? Has he been generous to you? I mean, friend, if we are saved today, if we know our sins are forgiven, I mean, the the worst of anything is over. And yet, how much more will he freely give us all things through Christ Jesus? So here's the grace point. God owes us nothing, and everything we have received from him, especially salvation, was given by grace alone. How has God been good to you in Jesus Christ? Think about that for just a minute. Let's just think about that. And Lord, help us to not grumble, but to be grateful. So in conclusion, isn't it shocking? Isn't the grace of the gospel shocking? It's amazing. Because it's completely unearned and undeserved. So let me ask you this question this morning. Is God calling you into his kingdom today? Will today you admit you are a sinner and receive salvation by believing that Christ died for you and was raised? Will you admit that, wow, I stand undeserving and all I can do now is to cast myself into his grace and recognize that Jesus died for me and was raised from the dead? And here's grace today. If you've not done that, he will save you today. Some people think they're beyond God's grace. But listen to the text, the last shall be first. Today can be the day of salvation. And to every believer today, we need this fresh reminder. Grace says God took the initiative. Works do not earn his love or favor. So rest in his grace, believer. Live with grace and share this grace with those who are crushed beneath the weight of religion. Will you share and show that grace to those around you? I'm telling you, this whole world that's around us is starving to see the grace of the gospel. People just don't realize it. And so this morning, whatever it is for you, we're going to stand. And as you stand, Nick's going to come and lead us in a song. And as we sing today, maybe today you realize, you know what? I realize I'm a believer. I want to make that known. 
and you want to come and let me know, and I'll pray with you. Maybe today you have questions about salvation. There are others here that would be more than happy to talk to you about the grace of God. Or maybe you're here today as a Christian, and you just need to kneel down and say, God, thank you for being gracious and good to me in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of the gospel, and thank you for the truth of your word. And now, Holy Spirit, do your work on our heart that we may worship you with gratitude, that we may respond in our hearts to the truth. And Lord, whatever it is that you're doing in any heart today, may that your will be accomplished in Jesus' name, amen.